Well, uh, we are beginning a new mini-sermon series today, uh, and we're going to be answering the question, what is the church? So back in 2020, we did a similar series when we were in the midst of the pandemic and physically separated from one another as a church, and now in a sense, we're still coming out of the pandemic, but moreover, we're coming out of a summer that's been full of busy and where we have had some distraction and been separated from one another in a variety of ways. So as we begin this series, let me provide just a few reasons why we're doing this series. We always want to help you understand why we're doing what we're doing, and so let me uh, provide just a few reasons for this. First of all, we want to provide a biblical basis and clarity regarding Jesus' church, what it is, what it is about. So we might use the word church often or every so often. We might tell someone that we go to church, which actually isn't true. But I'll come back to that in a little bit. We may feel invested and care about Center Church, but what is Jesus' church? How should we think about the church? If we're part of one, what does the Bible say about us, about who we are, about what we do? So we want to provide some clarity and biblical basis regarding Jesus' church. Secondly, we want to fight individualism and self-sufficiency. We live in a culture that is predicated on consumerism. This comes up in my, pre- in my preaching regularly because it's a daily reality for all of us that is in conflict with the gospel. There's good things about consumerism, but consumerism is based on you. It's based on your preferences, you being in control, you calling the shots, you getting your way. And what we're going to see today and what we see biblically generally is Jesus calls us to die to self. This daily invitation that we receive in consumerism to indulge ourselves actually works against our personal joy and our personal freedom. Jesus' church is intended to help one another, to fight for freedom, to fight for joy. And so part of this is fighting against individualism and self-sufficiency. Lastly, we're doing this series to help us prioritize our lives. If life isn't about me, then what is it about? How should we spend our time What should guide our conversations with one another? What are the things we should invest in and value in our everyday lives? We have many interests. Each of us does. And the Bible makes clear that Jesus is intended to be the primary interest, the number one in our lives. So what we see then in this is all of this is rooted in Jesus. We get pictures symbols, ideas in and through the life of Jesus that help us understand what it is we become a part of and who we are when we follow Jesus and when we place trust in him as one who saves us from our sins. And so we're going to be answering this question, what is the church, with four statements about Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at the idea of identity. So identity has to do with our sense of self. It is the traits and the personality and the characteristics that distinguish us as individuals. Identity is 
who we are as people. Now, in our everyday lives, we can work really hard at creating an identity. And this can involve many different things. This can involve our workout regimen. This can involve what we eat. Our identity can include the way that we look, where we shop, the clothes that we wear, the hobbies that we have, the grades that we get in school or try to get in school. This can include the vehicles that we drive, the house that we live in. This can encompass our job, how much money we make, how we spend the money that we make, the friends that we have. The reality is we spend hours and dollars and effort trying to project a cultivated identity. Each of us does in some ways. And this comprises how we want to be viewed by others. How we want others to respect us or what to focus on in who we are. These are the things that we want to be known for. And at base, it's what people think of us, right? That's what identity is. And if we really dig into this, what we will likely find is that each of us, at some point, care too much about the approval of others. We We want people to look at us and to think well in a certain direction or in a certain way. And what the Bible makes really clear is that our efforts to get people to think of us in a certain way or think about us in a certain way is largely not okay. Because it's oftentimes springing from sin. And, and this is soul-eating. It eats our souls. It eats at the core of who we are. It eats at true health within us. When someone trusts in Jesus the implication is that they stop trusting in themselves. Okay? When we trust in Jesus, the implication is we stop trusting in ourselves. And the result of this is we stop trying to create an identity. Rather, we let Jesus form our identity to say who we are, to say what we care about. And in all of life, then, we're seeking not other people's approval, but we're seeking Jesus' approval. We're seeking to point people to Jesus. And so today, we're going to answer the question, what is the church with this answer? It is the identity of Christ. You guys want to help me? Sorry. Okay, now it's back. Thanks. All right, this question answer might almost seem like it doesn't make sense, right? What is the church? It is the identity of Christ. So I want to talk about this and provide a little clarification here just briefly as we begin. This relates to my comment earlier that church is not a place that we go. When we hear the word church, It's so easy for us to think of place. This is how we have been trained, even the way in which we talk. We have been, we've been conditioned that the church is a building, right? I I think a lot of us have been, have had that communicated to us. That's what's been inferred to to many of us throughout our lives. And if this is true, then answering the question, what is the church with the identity of Christ, 
maybe seems a bit nonsensical to us, innocent. But, but here's the deal. The church is not a place. It, it isn't a building. What the church is, is it is a people. So in the New Testament, there's a Greek word that's used for church. It's, it's called ekklesia. And that word is used over a hundred times. And every single time that word is used, it's talking about people. It's never talking about a building or a structure. It's always talking about people. And this then has massive implications for us, for how we view what the church is. For one, church is not where we go. Church is who we are. Church is who we are. It is our identity. Okay, so then when we answer the question, what is the church with the identity of Christ, hopefully that makes a bit more sense. And, and hopefully everything else I'm going to say will help move us in this direction as well. But Jesus' church is intended to be an identity statement. Who we are, not where we go or what we do. Okay, so let's talk about how Jesus' church takes on Jesus' identity and what his identity is. How does someone get it? 1 Peter 2.9. It speaks here in this verse of how Jesus calls someone out of darkness and into light. So the idea I want to emphasize on here is the idea of calling. Okay? Jesus is calling someone out of darkness into light. And light here is a metaphor for goodness, for grace, for salvation. But the idea is Jesus is calling people to himself. So Jesus' identity, as he calls us, his identity is something that's received. It's something that is given to us. We can't go to a store and purchase it. We can't go to a job and work for it like we do a paycheck. Jesus calls people to himself, and then we receive his identity as we exercise faith in him. This can trip many people up, right? Because belief just seems too easy. There's got to be something more that we have to do in all of this. We should do something. Jesus' identity comes to us. It's a gift. It's given, and we receive it through faith. That's it. There's nothing else that we do to receive that. We are simply placing faith, giving ourselves over, submitting to Jesus. That is how we receive Jesus' identity. Okay, but then what is Jesus' identity? Or maybe what does this mean for us? What does it look like? Its characteristics. And this is where a Christian identity gets a bit confrontational for us. Maybe it's going to make us a bit uncomfortable. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, read this way. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God. Okay, so let's look at that first phrase, Okay. You are not your own. You are not your own. 
in a culture that is obsessed with self, self-esteem, self-indulgence, self-focused, self-care, which has its merits, it's a bit disorienting to hear the Bible speak in this way. So much of the media that we consume tells us it is all about you. But the Bible comes in and kind of steps on our toes and says, it's not about you. You are not your own. And so at minimum, this should grab our attention. For some of us, maybe we'll say, like, I don't like that. So, but at minimum, this has to grab our attention. Okay? So if we are not our own, if we are possessed by someone else, a natural follow-up question would be, why would God do this? Why would God say this? I mean, doesn't God want us to be happy? And the resounding answer to that question is, yes, he does. In fact, God desires your satisfaction more than you do. What God is telling us in this is the fact that there are many good things that are given to us in our life for our enjoyment. But the problem is we blur the lines between enjoyment and worship. See, we don't just enjoy things, we worship things. We then depend on these things for our satisfaction. And the reality is there's no gadget, hobby, spouse, job, house, and the list can go on and on that can withstand the expectations of God. There's nothing else in this world that can shoulder the expectations, the weightiness that only God can. And see, what we do as we worship various people or accomplishments is we begin to find our identity in those things. And what will ultimately happen as we find our identity in those things is those things will crumble. They won't be able to withstand the weightiness that we're putting on them because they were never intended to be worshipped. They were never intended to function like a god. And so these things will disappoint us because they were intended to point us to the goodness of God. To move us, as we encounter this goodness, to move us to worship God himself, the giver of that thing. And so the call to not seek our identity in anyone or anything other than Jesus is God's way of seeking our satisfaction. Jesus when he speaks about all of this, he speaks of following him. In Luke 9, he says that we are to deny ourselves. And in Luke 14, Jesus says that to follow him means we will have to renounce all that you have or all that I have. That's what it looks like, what it means to follow Jesus. Now, if we really mine into what's being said here, practically, this could get really offensive, right? Downright uncomfortable. At times, illogical, even. 
when we felt called to plant Center Church, I have some memory of someone challenging me as to how I could do this to my family. I was taking a significant step back financially, and we were going to be having our fourth child soon after planting the church. And so it seemed unwise to them to make this major change in our lives. Like, what? Why would I go from a stable job to this job where I had to ask people to give me money and depend completely on other people doing that? And then after that, depend on a church that has no people, no money, no nothing, right? That was my plan. For sure, we had to make sacrifices and tough decisions. But there's nothing special about what we did. That's all in line with what we're reading here in the book of Luke, right? So, so I'm not up here saying, oh, look at us. No. This is what Jesus called us to. To not do this would have been disobedient. We should expect that we're going to feel this idea of denying ourselves, of renouncing all that we have. Because this is what Jesus calls us to. And so, when we follow Jesus, there's this dynamic that dreams are going to be dashed. Well, maybe a better way of saying this is, dreams are going to be reshaped. Because Jesus will give us good dreams, better dreams. So it's not like his dashing of our materialistic dreams is something he's doing to try to steal our joy. Right? That's not what he's about. So our dreams are going to be reshaped. Comfort is going to be sacrificed. And yet there are many different forms of comfort that are given to those who trust in Jesus and follow after him through God's Spirit. But the desire to have, to consume, to be something in the eyes of this world has to die when we follow Jesus. And as your pastor, and given our context here in America, in the Western world, filled with pleasure and comfort, I am responsible to help us feel this, to sit with this reality. And I have no interest in shaming you. In fact, my intention is to not shame you in this, but just to facilitate letting God do his work in each of your individual hearts. But we've got to wrestle through questions. What are those things in your heart that rival Jesus? We all have things. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's having our kids look a certain way or accomplish a certain thing or have opportunities. What are those things in your heart that rival Jesus? How has God's Spirit been poking you? What are are those things, and how has God's Spirit been poking you? Maybe for many years, and you keep giving God a stiff arm. What are your consumeristic dreams? Do you have possessions that are really important to you? And are there ways 
Are there things, are there ways in which you have been poked by God and you've sought to just kind of hit the mute button and say, don't go there. Kind of put the police tape around that area of your heart and say, don't venture there, God. Is your heart in certain ways, in certain forms, shut off to Jesus? Are you proud about certain things? How do you sinfully find identity? Look for identity in a thing or a person rather than Jesus. I realize we're all tempted in various ways, and it looks differently for all of us. My concern is we're willing to overlook our sin, to minimize it, in some sense to embrace sin, and to think it's not a big deal. But this is not how the Bible talks about these things. Galatians 2.20 speaks of taking on Jesus' identity in this way. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. So, so this is looking at Jesus on the cross, okay? And, and the author Paul here, he is identifying with what Jesus is doing. Not in the exact same way, but as Jesus dies, he's saying he's experienced some of this. As he's followed Jesus, he also has experienced death in himself. And so then he goes on and he says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so there's this sense that he has fully and totally and completely given himself over to Jesus. That it's no longer him living, but he's so closely identified with Jesus that it's Jesus who's coming through him, that's living in him, that is predominant in his life. And he says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what's really clear in this verse and and the other aspects we've talked about thus far is following Jesus, being his church, means to not love our lives. There is this reality of following Jesus that we're embracing selflessness. That our lives are about Jesus, not ourselves. Okay, so then, what are the characteristics of Jesus' identity that will increasingly be seen in our lives? What does this practically look like? In our lives. There's many places we could go in the Bible, but one really helpful book in this regard is Ephesians. One of the things about the book of Ephesians is that it's astounding how many times it uses the phrase in Jesus or in Christ Jesus or similar phrases to that. And in this phrase, what it's inferring is the idea of identity. You are in Jesus. You have put him on, taken on 
who he is. And Ephesians begins by emphasizing how people are blessed when they are in Jesus. And the blessing is experienced through the kindness of God that comes in various forms. And Ephesians goes on then to state how this blessing comes in the form of people being adopted by him, of people being chosen by him, of people being forgiven by him, of people being saved and united and sealed by Jesus. Jesus chose Christians that were not choosing him. They were enemies when he was choosing them. Christians are adopted into a family that they were not a part of. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross provides forgiveness of sins for Christians. That which separated them from God has now been removed. We're able to be brought near to him. When Jesus saves us, he unites us, sinners, to himself. He seals Christians. And this idea of sealing has security. It means people can't lose their salvation. Jesus is the one guaranteeing it. We see Jesus taking the initiative in all of this. He is doing everything for us. He is the guarantor. He takes responsibility. He ensures. He welcomes. He cares for us. He's making us part of his family. And in this, we see how he gives us a new identity. He gives us a new name. He takes sinners and he calls them saints. He takes the sinful and he makes them holy. And in all of this, then, we, we see this idea of we are, those trusting in Jesus, are approved. Approved. Which means we no longer need to take the time, spend our energy, or be worried about garnering the approval of others. This is a massive implication of taking on the identity of Christ. All Jesus does for us results in and says we are approved by him. Approved based on his word. Approved based on his sacrifice. Approved in a way that cannot be changed. Not based on ourselves or what we do. How freeing would it be if we lived as though we had nothing to prove? How freeing would it be if we had nothing to prove? This is what Jesus intends for us. That we would be freed from that. And this is why we get crazy lists like we read in Galatians 5. This is what a life looks like when someone takes on the identity of Jesus. This is what Christians look like. It says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness, self-control. Now, I'm going to be really careful here. I'm not saying Christians are expected to be this, to look this way perfectly. But increasingly. Not perfectly, but increasingly. Is this how people experience you? Or, or maybe, let's do this differently. Do you experience me in this way? That's my hope. That as you interact with me, that you experience these realities. And if not, then my family, not nuclear family, my church family, should talk to me. Am I harsh? Then you should talk to me about that. You should expect that I would be gentle and kind. It doesn't mean I don't call out sin. It doesn't mean I'm not firm. But I should do all of it graciously, full of love. I want to look at one of the words in here, and that word is peace. We can be filled with peace because we know that Jesus has conquered our greatest enemy, which is sin. Also, peace can fill our hearts because we don't need to tirelessly work for the approval of someone else. This is where a lot of lack of peace comes from, right? We're trying to be something for someone else, be approved in some way. Our being united to Jesus means we're focused on what he says about us. And so when, other, when someone else says something about us, we can let that roll off because we've found sturdiness in Jesus. We're listening primarily to what Jesus says. And so then in our lives, what continues to pummel us from Jesus is his regard for us. He loves us knowing that it's undeserved, and yet he still loved us. He loved us when it was foolish. He loves us when it's hard. Now the world we live in and Satan are going to try to convince us that Jesus' love for us is conditional. But this is why it's helpful for us to spend more time letting our Bibles, letting each other, shape our understanding of Jesus. He loves us in a way that we just won't see perfectly around us. His love is far beyond what a roommate, how a roommate might love you, how a spouse might love you, how a friend might love you. And so, it's good for us to sit with a list like this and ask ourselves questions. Like, are we known for our love? And maybe not just sit with ourselves, but actually ask other people these questions. Are we filled with joy? Are we peaceful? Are we known for our kindness? Do people experience us as gentle? And I think what we'll find is our resemblance to Jesus, and what I mean by that are, is our identification 
with him has plenty of room for growth. So we, we don't, by being exposed, seeing shortcomings, we don't have to throw our hands up in the air and say, I'm a horrible Christian and Jesus isn't going to approve of me any longer. When we ask these questions and get answers that maybe are disconcerting, this is not a call to do better. It's a call to trust Jesus, to turn to him, to stop trying to be and to do things that you can't, and let Jesus do and be what he is and what he does. Jesus desires to form us in these ways as we identify with him. But we've got to understand this is a whole life, whole heart endeavor. We are not straddling a fence between Jesus and the world. He's saying, deny yourself. Give yourself fully to him. Submit completely to him. We can either exhaust ourselves trying to make ourselves into something that we will never be satisfied with, or we can receive Jesus' identity from him by placing our faith in him and letting him shape us into his likeness. And this is what he promises to do to us and for us and in us. If we want to be joyful, the key to this is not just putting a smile on our face, a fake plastic smile when we're angry, when we're discouraged, when we're unhappy, when our heart is broken. The key to being filled with joy is to know Jesus, to submit to him, to trust him, to fill us with joy based on who he is and what he's done, not on how good am I doing all of the uh, Christian religious duties, hoop jumping, that we think he asks us to do. It's not about what we do. It's about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So if we want to be joy-filled, then we look at Jesus and we see his love for us, his pursuit of us, his approval of us, his embracing of us when we're giving him a stiff arm. And so, the question for us as we wrap up is, do you know Jesus? Not American Jesus. Not insert political party Jesus. Not whatever I want Jesus. Not do you vaguely know some things Jesus said but do you know Jesus? Jesus as he reveals himself in the Bible. Jesus as he confronts us, but also as he comforts us. Do you know that Jesus? This is who we have to know. If we want to find contentment, if we want to find what we're looking for, we've got to see Jesus for how he reveals Himself, And this is our point of gospel application. Jesus is where we find what we are looking for. 
So you might think you want money or something else, but I'm going to use money here, okay? You might think you want money, but you don't. What you want is security. What you want is to be loved. What you want is satisfaction. Money might give you a whiff of this, but it will never give you enough. It will never endure, but Jesus will. And so the call for us is to look at him, to trust in Jesus, because he is who and what we are looking for. And this is what it means to be his church, to find our identity in the one true Savior of this world.